We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the legendary CHML newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here we are, sandwiched between storm number one and two winter of 2024. I can't lie, it's a little bit better than a global pandemic. Here's Scott Thompson. Uh, so nice, it's worth using twice. And still applies. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. As the Prime Minister uh, comes home from, uh, is now home from his uh, uh, his Jamaican vacation, uh, the Prime Minister now denies, of course, this was brought up by the Conservatives uh, the other day about his uh, his trip, and he and they're saying, the Prime Minister's office saying, well, no, it was cleared by the ethics people, um, but the ethics people, I didn't think have the, or they don't think have the same facts that what he was sharing. So uh, when the ethics community heard that he was paying for the trip, sure, that's no problem. But uh, not so much when they're aware that it is free, which came out after the ethics commissioner had okayed all of this. So that's where we are with that as uh, things continue to unravel for the president or for the prime minister. Another thing that was, and this is really um, troublesome when you think about where we are coming out of a global pandemic, man, people are, have had it and now affordability uh, impossible, whether it's housing, whether it's groceries, what have you. Um, and, and we're hearing on how the population in the last year has grown by 1.1 million Canadians and the government was told by immigration officials over two years ago that this immigration or these immigration targets were way too high and that the stress that it would put on housing and health care. And that's what we're seeing. You know, we, we were trying to get the health care system back in order after a global pandemic and things were starting to look better. All of a sudden, every emergencies room, uh, room is crowded because there's lots of people coming in looking for family doctors or health care. Same thing with housing. So, um, you know, again, here we go. Information that was known a couple of years ago. You know, housing a bit more difficult to predict, although no, it's not because population predictions are made. And, 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 and again, the government told by immigration officials to pump the brakes. You can't do this. And they did it anyway because it drives votes when they are tanking in the polls. So, um, you know, it, it just seems to be any information that doesn't go contrary to what they believe. They, they just seem to ignore. And then today, and we were looking for clips from this, uh, Deputy, uh, Prime Minister Christia Freeland is out, um, selling old housing uh, announcements and, and things that they've already said. And, and, and the big announcement out of what I was saying, and that's why we're having a hard time finding anything on it, was that, you know, uh, more people have now applied for the home savings account, the tax-free home savings account that they announced, which, again, has been announced by other parties a long time ago. So, um uh, you know, it, it, it's it's and the other thing is when the when the deputy prime minister was asked about, you know, this report that immigration said you shouldn't have brought in this many people. She then moves to, well, that's why we're building so many houses. Well, what about the people that were looking for houses before last year, before you brought in a million point one people or one point uh, one million people? 
So, you know, it just continues and continues and reporters are asking the same questions over and over again. And then she just deviates uh, and starts talking about how their most important priority now is housing. Since when? Their number one priority has been a carbon tax and saving the planet, not you and me. And now all of a sudden their number one priority is housing. Because they're tanking in the polls, and that's the number one priority in your mind, as well as affordability, which is the other one they don't want to touch, because that leads to the talk about the carbon tax. So it's just around and around and around we go. We've got more polls coming out that, uh, you know, any sort of honeymoon that was happening or or break in the trend of of the decline of this party over Christmas has gone. And people are, are is feeling the same way and the same trends are continuing. But to hear, you know, the, the, the deputy prime minister say that the biggest issue for them is, a for, is housing is astounding because it certainly wasn't their biggest issue two years ago when immigration officials told them this is way too high and is going to stress our health care and our already crisis housing market. And healthcare, for that matter, not to mention the economy. So again, it's you know the government continues to say that you know their economic plan is more immigration, but really what it is is more votes for a declining party that's fallen by the day. And here we go. Happy twenty twenty four. I know it's going to get better though. Here's a word that'll make a lot of people double over: amalgamation. <laughs> Uh, and, and you know, they, they, they talk about it still in this area. Well, just south of us, Niagara politicians are voicing their opinions about the future of their region before a provincial committee, or did on Wednesday. And uh, the housing crisis, a major focus of where they go next, whether it's amalgamation or shared services or however, whatever the future holds. Uh, let's bring in Matthew Ray, MPP for Perth Wellington, Parliamentary Assistant to the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, uh, Vice Chair, Standing Committee on Procedure and House Affairs, uh, Infrastructure, Heritage, and Cultural Policy. Wow, that's a business card. Matthew, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I'm well. And yeah, it is quite a business card. A lot of responsibilities. So, um, you know, uh, I, we certainly all know anybody who's been in, in, in a larger region than Niagara, how uh, this can be a very, uh, uh, a very interesting discussion. Where is Niagara now? Is this a discussion that we're having or you're having right now because of the housing situation or is that always on the, or was this always on the back burner anyway? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. Uh, our government, obviously, as you know, is focused on getting 1.5 million homes built by 2031 and this is a component of it. Uh, I know the minister, uh, Minister Calandra, asked the standing committee uh, to undertake a, a review of regional governance uh, in Ontario in the fastest sort of growing communities. And obviously, Niagara is one of them. Uh, and it was great to be in St. Catharines yesterday uh, to hear from mayors and citizens about what they would like to see their government do for them. So amalgamation, not necessarily the answer. Is it a different solution, a different template here than we see in other areas? I guess we're all different. Yeah, we're 100%. Every region's different. Uh, Ontario is a great big province and a very different community is obviously within that province. And the committee is really looking at supporting governance models uh, that can help uh, Ontario's fastest growing municipalities and areas. Uh, as I mentioned, Niagara is obviously one of them and will be for the next 50 years in ensuring that we are supporting homes getting built and ensuring that 
we're enabling housing, uh, enabling infrastructure as well, which was something we heard loud and clear from our municipal colleagues yesterday. That uh, being said, um, obviously there is some resistance in certain areas. Uh, we're just fine the way we are. Uh, man, if we had a loony for every time we've heard that, uh, we wouldn't be in a housing crisis right now. How do you deal with that, um, considering what you've just said? We already know the housing crisis that we're in, but also how this area is is uh, is set for growth in the future, which is fabulous, and how we have to prepare for that. That's how we got into a crisis in the first place, was not preparing. Yeah, 100%. And this review of regional governance is working towards to ensure that we're prepared for the next 25, 50 years, ensuring that we get shovels in the ground, uh, whether that's wastewater infrastructure, whether that's roads, bridges, uh, whether it's obviously investments in infrastructure around the Welland Canal for economic development, which came up yesterday as well. Uh, it really is ensuring that the provincial, federal, and regional municipal governments are working together to get those necessary investments. It, it's great to uh, see the growth uh, in the Greater Golden Horseshoe and obviously in Niagara. And I know at a provincial level, we're going to ensure that we don't do what previous governments have done and not get shovels in the ground. We're going to build transit-oriented communities and ensuring we give the tools to the municipalities to do that, too. So how does amalgamation or whatever the deal is, whatever you want to call it, shared services, how does that help this process? Well, we heard a lot of great ideas uh, yesterday from the municipal uh, colleagues and citizens that presented a variety of ideas, whether that's uh, uh, changing some of the roles at the region and municipal level, for example, uh, whether it's downloading roads to the lower tier municipalities, because uh, that obviously, whether we're in winter now and the snow is coming, as uh, your show mentioned uh, this weekend, and whether it's ensuring winter maintenance is a seamless process, but also development. Uh, I know uh, there are there's work we can do at the provincial level around that as well for with MTO, but ensuring that roads don't hold up uh, site plan approvals and other in- initiatives like that. Uh, what can you learn from others, other situations like this? Uh, obviously, that it's less about housing, more amal- uh, about amalgamation and getting things done. What are some of those challenges? Yes, a lot of challenges. Uh, obviously, the interest rate now and the cost of doing business and building uh, infrastructure has gone up. And I know uh, in the fall economic statements, which uh, was well received in Niagara, uh, around the wastewater infrastructure that provincially we announced $200 million, uh, over three years. Uh, obviously, there is more we can do, and I know we continue to consult with our municipalities to achieve that. But it really is getting shovels in the ground for housing-enabling infrastructure and getting those homes built for the families that are coming to Ontario and the young people that really want to benefit from the dream of home ownership like their parents have. Where is the resistance to that, Matthew? You always see that, uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, earlier, uh, Scott, with uh, some preferring the status quo, uh, a lot of nimbyism uh, still in many communities across Ontario. And I know provincially we're working to highlight the benefits uh, of those people coming to Ontario. I know for economic development, we're attracting a lot of uh, new businesses and good paying jobs. And obviously, we need people to fill those roles and they need a place to live. And so ensuring that uh, our regional governments support getting more homes built and the housing enabling infrastructure is key to meeting those challenges of the 21st century. Niagara region dealing with what everybody else is uh, dealing with and how to do it the right way. Matthew Ray, MPP for Perth Wellington uh, with us now. Matthew, thanks for the time. Good luck. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You as well. Lots going on south of the border in regard to the Republican Party. 
uh, Chris Christie dropping out and Donald Trump uh, in, of course, the throes of the uh, New York City fraud case. So we'll talk about that. Let's bring in Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News here now. Reggie, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Good afternoon. So let's start with Chris Christie, and he announced yesterday he's resigning. Uh, that leaves two left and, and made an interesting comment on the way out the door, per se. Uh, update us on that. Uh uh, yeah, I mean, this this was um, a, a, a something that had been talked about over the last couple of days, given the fact that Chris Christie's numbers had not been uh, where, you know, his campaign had thought they would be, particularly in Iowa, given the fact that or despite the fact that that Christie has spent the majority of his time campaigning in New Hampshire, but ultimately going out the door, going out the door with uh, with a loud comment, uh, trying to say that, you know, Nikki Haley is uh, is is going to flame out here, saying that Ron DeSantis was petrified when he called uh, Chris Christie and all of it asks the question, uh, uh, you know, where are the people who were lining up behind Chris Christie ultimately going to go because he was the alternative to Trump? Can Nikki Haley bill, uh, beat uh, DeSantis? Uh, I don't know. I guess we have to wait to see what the voters say uh, in Iowa on Monday. They are uh, at a neck and neck race uh, vying for the number two spot, some 30 plus points behind Donald Trump. Uh, in Iowa, I mean, look, Ron DeSantis has has crisscrossed all 99 counties over the last several months in the state, um, you know, and, and if he can't get anywhere close to Donald Trump, even if he comes in second place, the question is, does he have the momentum to keep going, given that he's been hemorrhaging both staff and cash? Nikki Haley, on the other hand, has made comments in um, you know, New Hampshire that may have bothered people in Iowa. So, I mean, both of them, again, trying to be the alternative to Trump. The question is, when Trump is so far ahead, does it really matter who comes in second? Any more chatter, Reggie, about Liz Cheney and her aspirations and where that may go? Uh, I mean, not anything that's making any kind of top line, um, you know, yeah. news uh, in the United States. I mean, we've we've heard from Liz Cheney a couple of times over the holidays into the beginning of the year. She has said that she doesn't intend to run for president and she's running out of time if she intends to be doing something like that, given the fact that caucuses and primaries are about to start up. And unless she's planning some kind of write in campaign or there's going to be some effort at the convention to to move beyond what the what the the voters in the first place had said during primary caucus season um i mean i think liz cheney is just a potential talking point for moderates and out, others outside of the republican party who are looking for someone different uh all right so update us on where donald trump is with this new york city fraud case and him addressing the court well, I mean, look, he was denied the chance to address the court originally and then uh, was given uh, some grace as the closing arguments wrapped up earlier uh, on Thursday afternoon. But his comments were shut down after five minutes uh, by the judge because Trump went into a campaign style speech calling this a political witch hunt. He had made some comments about the judge prior to that, saying that he has an agenda. Um, I mean, unexpected for somebody in Trump's position to address the court. Um, you know, it's not clear that's going to actually, you know, move the needle or anything. It is the judge who's ultimately making a decision here and says that he'll make it based on the facts that were presented. Trump came out afterwards swinging, arguing again that this is a politically motivated witch hunt against him, saying somehow New York's attorney general and the White House are behind this trial. His legal team feels that they are going to come out on top uh, and they need to come out on top because a loss for Trump in New York will be a massive hit to his financial empire that he has spent decades building. So where is this case? What's ne what's next? 
I mean, look, closing arguments uh, from the state uh, are underway. Uh, and once that is done, this will be in the hands um, of, of the judge. The judge is going to be the one who ultimately makes a decision here. This is not going to be uh, a jury trial. Um, and if if this sides against Donald Trump, you know, whether the announcement comes today or tomorrow or sometime in the next few weeks, um, pending an appeal, he could owe hundreds of millions of dollars and the Trump organization may cease to operate in the state that gave Trump uh, his name. So what's next? Watching to see if there is an appeal, watching to see if Trump takes this to the campaign trail further to claim that he is a political victim here, worth pointing out, too. He says that he will attend all future court appearances. Um, and I think that's a remarkable comment to make, given the fact that he's in the middle of campaigning and this chews up valuable time that he, he may need in states where he may not be doing as well. So say he uh, wins in New York. Let's let's play both scenarios. He wins in New York. What does that mean for him? Well, if he wins in New York, he's going to to claim vindication here. He's going to claim that he was right all along, much like his legal team has been saying, and that this was um, an attempt by what he believes to be a politically motivated attorney general simply trying to go after Trump because he it plays for a, a different political team. Um, you know, it, it, again, it's unclear what's going to happen here. And even if he wins uh, in New York, he still faces a, a federal trial in Miami on documents. He faces the right. trial in Georgia for election subversion. He's awaiting to find out if he has blanket immunity in Washington, D.C. So the question is, is one potential win on uh, on right. the legal front enough to kind of secure victory over any potential losses on the rest of the legal calendar combined with what's going on in his campaign calendar? Uh, obviously, if he loses major blow, does it have any effect on those other cases other than he has less money in the bank for this? Uh, no, uh, this is a civil trial. This is not a federal trial. So whatever happens yeah. here is not going to impact uh, Georgia or, or Florida and, and realistically doesn't impact New York as well. Remember where he was indicted, first of all, uh, on charges linked to hush money payments uh, to Stormy Daniels. So this is a civil trial. Um, there's no kind of legal ruling here. It's going to be an equitable ruling uh, in that the state is seeking uh, finances uh, and a way to 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 you know stop the Trump um, uh, company from being able to operate in the state. But Again, beyond the civil level trial here, uh, it doesn't impact anything else on his calendar. Uh, how does this affect his campaign for president? Well, I mean, look, he's, he's he continues to to come out and say that he did nothing wrong to say that this is a Democratic operative against him, uh, that this is this is, you know, a corrupt attorney general going after him. He's trying to gin up his base to play the political victim, to play uh, the punching bag for the Democratic Party, um, while arguing that that he's done nothing wrong, but if something wrong was done, that it was done by someone else. This time around, he's blaming uh, the accountants at the Trump Organization if something does go wrong. So this works for him in that he can continue to build up that support within the base to say, look, they're treating me uh, unfairly. Uh, you know, that may work in the primaries. The question is, if Trump is the ultimate nominee, does that work for him in a general election? Because those same claims that he made in 2020, that he was a victim here of political persecution, ultimately wound up in not enough people coming out to vote for him uh, and Joe Biden's election. So it could be a short term um, you know, solution for him. The question is, does that work in the long run? Uh, any chance he'll debate anybody? Can he go through all this without debating anyone? 
He's gone through it without debating anyone uh, so far and doesn't believe yeah. that he needs to because he has uh, such high numbers, uh, because he, he doesn't believe or doesn't feel uh, that he that he needs to to go up against people who are fighting for the number two spot um, in the race. You know, he doesn't have a record to run on over the last four years. So the question is, will he debate against Joe Biden once we get into um, right. you know the season where the nominees are chosen? Republicans say he won't. You know, if he doesn't, does that simply give Joe Biden the upper hand? Wow. Reggie Cicchini with us, Washington correspondent for Global News, keeping an eye on everything south of the border with us. As always, Reggie, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. Reason being, we're going to talk about Trudeau's uh, Jamaican vacation. Everybody says, well, it was cleared by the ethics officer, so everything's cool. But the information changed because when the ethics officer was first notified about this, he was paying his own way. Then the information changed and it was a freebie. So was that run through the ethics commissioner, Alyssa? How are you today? Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Scott. Always good to hear from you in another yet another juicy vacation story. Here we go. Uh, here we go again. Um, I don't know. Uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody cares if the PM goes on a vacation. You know, everybody deserves to go on one. And, and my goodness, I could not be a politician. It's a stressful, stressful job. Uh, but, but this is different. What, what are your thoughts? Well, I think the only reason that we think is different. And so, yes, I think that, you know, heads of state go on vacation all the time and nobody ever blinks an eye. So the last time they blinked an eye was when he went to the Yaga Khan's estate, I do believe, for a family vacation. And they felt that that was having undue influence on potential policy and people got all up in arms around that. And then Trudeau said at the time, well, I'm not going to do any more vacations like that. I will behave differently. Okay, so he goes on this vacation somewhere in Jamaica to a villa, and they name the fellow who owns the villa. So the conservatives look into this, and I mean, at at this point, Scott, everything is everything is up for up for grabs as to what they want to go after the Liberal Party or the or the or Trudeau himself for. So it doesn't matter what it is; it could be the way he ties his shoes one day. I mean, who knows? I think that there it's incumbent upon the conservatives to say, okay. Do Canadians really care about this? Is this what you want to get to your 24 hours of uh, media? And is this the best uh, use of your time when there's many other pressing issues that you could be talking about? But, you know, they're not sitting, they're not back in Parliament yet. So I guess at this point, it's like, grab it what you can. Doesn't matter what it is. Let's just make some noise about it. I, I, I don't. Here I, we are. I don't think this is the same as tying your shoes a certain way. Um, it, and, and again, I don't think it's about his vacation. I don't think it's about his rich friends. I think it's about his comms people say that it's all been cleared by the ethics uh, commissioner. And then they change their statement and they say they're clarifying it. They're not clarifying it. They're changing it. This went from him paying his way to he's staying for free. The only thing that's missing is it's not costing the taxpayer. At least the the uh, the accommodations aren't. So I think that's the issue here. The issue here is is once again he's lying. He's saying one thing, and then they're clarifying. No, they're changing the facts. And is or, that been, or, and has that been presented to the ethics officer? Well, there's. I think there's a couple things at play here, Scott. You know. Are they changing the facts or somebody never had the story right in the first place? And that Oh, happened. please. Give me enough oh, about this no, comms no, no. problem. He's no, got a comms problem. I don't he's know if they have full staff. I'm, I'm telling you what goes on, Scott. Uh, I mean, you know. He's got is, no comms staff. He's increased the. Of, I sorry, hate Trudeau, so anything he does is bad. But I know, I'm here I know. to say 
there might be another issue, whether I like the guy or not. So what, So from a communications perspective, you issue a statement. Everybody goes, oh, OK, let's just go back to our vacations. And then somebody looks at it and says, uh, no, nobody contacted me. And I can tell you exactly what happened. So now you're going to have to go back and be on the record correctly. So no matter what happens when you do that, whenever you start to backpedal or try to correct the record, it, it causes consternation and it raises questions. And that's where we are right now. So will we ever get to the bottom of it? Maybe, maybe not. But am I saying, are we saying straight out that he was lying? I don't know. I think that that's a bit of a bridge too far. And always, you know, when we think of politicians, let's just go straight to, well, he must be lying. Well, let's let's put it this way. He's not telling the truth. And, and, and let's be honest about the comms thing. They're milking that excuse forever. You know what our problem is? We're just not getting the message out, which is why they got a brand new comms person about a month before Christmas, before this even happened. So what the heck happened there with the new comms department? Well, I don't think that that comms person has actually really gotten their feet into the into this as much as they they should have at this point. And I think that there's probably this is the first issue to sort of when the proverbial, you know, what hits the pan that they will have to deal with. So with something like this, you know, when you bring on a new comms person, especially when, you know, you're at this level in the prime minister's office, Scott, there's about a mountain's worth of files that you need to get up to speed on and up to speed on quickly. So do you think that a new comms person uh, for being in there? Less they than don't have that much time, to... Alyssa. They yeah, don't have that much time. But it doesn't matter, Scott. Jobs are jobs. Okay. So I'm a Is... comms person and people bring me in and expect me to say, okay, I've been in jobs and they go, well, do you have the plan yet? And I've been on the job for 48 hours. So I think that there is some sense of realism that has to enter the picture. So if we are still talking three months from now and nice and the comms are all wonky, well, then I would say, you know what? The guy's been on the job for three months. He knows what the priorities are. He knows what the narratives are going to be. So therefore, he really should have his act together. So for being hired just before Christmas, and here we are on January the 11th. I think he's been in there. I think he was in there. For, I think he was in there for over. I think he was in there for a month at least. And And, you know, it's just seems that we're always blaming the messenger maybe it's the message that's wrong well i think that that's really endemic to politics okay so when the message is wrong scott and you have to backpedal then you've got to be find credibility with the message so there so the way it breaks down is you have an overall message and then you've got your proof points and what's missing here are proof points that find credibility and uh, resonance among critics and Canadians that care about it. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and <laughs> pop culture expert. What a way to start the year, Alyssa. Uh, happy Honestly, New Year to you. you know what? On my way, I, I talked to you in a soundproof booth, and on my way here, I'm like strapping on my boxing gloves. Go it's the first it. interview with Scott for the year. He'll, he'll be nice, but oh, no. <laughs> uh, I'll, mellow, I'll mellow out by February. All right, Alyssa, have fun. Be well. You too, Scott. Thanks for having me. Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Did Health Canada ignore warning signs before Ottawa spent billions on rapid tests during the COVID-19 pandemic? To talk more about all of this, Patty Sontag with us, investigative journalist with Global News and Here Now. Patty, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you. Yes, I am. So, Patty, what's the story here? What's happening around these tests? Well, uh, 
you know, Global News has reported today that uh, the um, process, uh, the licensing process for this test has raised some questions, also some correspondence among federal officials. So there were warning signs uh, that there was an official who raised a red flag and said there could be an issue um, with regards to uh, the company, and yet the test was approved. Um, so uh, uh, we'll have to see what happens next now that we've re- drawn attention to those issues. And what is the issue that that is of concern here? Uh, well, it wasn't just one study where uh, more than 100 uh, specimens were missing. It was two um, within the package. And so that raises questions about uh, why is it that uh, Health Canada officials didn't notice um, that all this this information was was not not submitted, um, and also about why this happened in the first place? Uh, under both Canadian and U.S. law, um, you know, both health regulators uh, would say that this is not in compliance. So is the question or is the are the questions that are being raised about whether all of the research and all of the data information was included or in or is the issue in and around the accuracy of the test or is it that you need all of the information in order to make that decision Well in in the previous reporting you know the 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 regulators when they're making the decisions about how to how to approve a test and how to employ it. They need to have apparently, you know, the experts tell us all the information at their fingertips to make a good decision. It goes into like a complex algorithm that's used to calculate, you know, what the effect of the spread might be if it's used in a certain way, say, or 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 not. Um, and so, since there was. Uh, there's questions about so much information has been missing, missing. It raises questions about whether regulators were able to supply accurate information to the public about how to use these tests. So we may not know how accurate any of this data is. I guess is that it, it, we just don't have enough information. Is that accurate? Uh, well, um, we we don't know uh, at this point uh, what the accuracy of the test is, and that changes right. over time as right. well, and also from person to person. Um, but you, uh, in general, uh, you know, the the reason that the law states what it does about having to offer all the information is, like, you want your regulator to have all the information in their yeah. hands when they're de- making their decisions. Uh, this whipped through because of the urgent need for a testing? I guess we don't know, do we? Um, well, we do know from the correspondence uh, that uh, uh, Health Canada officials gave this uh, a kind of a priority, um, which was, uh, which doesn't, isn't completely explained at this point. So uh, where does this go from here, Patty? Uh, many of us have these tests. I'm looking at one right now. Um, well, uh, you know, uh, some of the leading experts in Canada and researchers have called for an investigation into how these events unfolded and um, independent 
uh, research verification of the the data, and I guess we'll have to um, see how this unfolds. All right, Patty Sontag with us, investigative journalist with Global News. Uh, make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this. Patty, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. All right, so uh, COVID-19 rapid tests. Remember when we couldn't get enough of these? It's uh, how do we get one? How do we get one? And now we're finding out that perhaps um, these tests were approved without of all of the data. Therefore, um, how conclusive can they be? We'll leave it at that. Wait to see what happens. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The war in Gaza and the conflict that is going on there. And we've been trying a lot, very hard, and did finally yesterday getting somebody to speak from the Palestinian side and, and asking some some simple questions as, you know, who who do Palestinians support? Uh, for me, uh, being an outsider and, you know, whose mother uh, was an immigrant, I'm a first-generation Canadian. For me, this is not about... Um, uh, Palestinians versus Israelis. It's not about one religion versus another. It's not about left versus right. It's about freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism and terror. And I'm not sure we're collect, uh, connecting all the dots here and who is actually supporting who. Uh, let's bring in Mike Fagelman, Executive Director, Honest Reporting Canada, a nonprofit organization ensuring fair and accurate Canadian media coverage of Israel. And his latest in the National Post. It is up to Gazans to stop the fighting. The war could be over tomorrow if Hamas laid down its arms or the civilian population stopped supporting it. And to talk more about all of this, uh, Mike is with us now. Mike, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Great to be here with you, Scott. Thank you for taking the time. Um, you know, we certainly hear lots, and there's no wonder uh, we're watching the carnage and the death and the destruction that is going on. Lots of people talking for a ceasefire, uh, an end to this in any way. But it all seems to be directed at Israel. What are Palestinians' views of Hamas? Are, are, are Hamas, or is Hamas being asked to, to stop what is what are or what is palestinians views of hamas and i understand you can't put everybody in one umbrella but they are the ruling party there are they not they are uh, they've been ruling uh, the gaza strip for about 16 years uh they won in in elections and then they fully usurped control in a violent coup d'etat um, from fatah which was the ruling party a year later in terms of palestinians own views of hamas there is a majority of Gazans who support uh, Hamas's October 7th massacre of Israeli civilians. And that's just in Gaza. In the West Bank, there's an even higher percentage of Palestinians who support uh, what was you know, the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. Uh, the decapitation, the maiming, the gruesome murder, beheadings, burning of bodies, you know, the most grotesque human rights atrocities. And, and those are the views of the population. And, uh, you know, the idea that, that Palestinians are, are just caught in the middle between Hamas, again, there's a responsibility as that happens because Hamas was voted to be their representative body, would committed one of the most horrible acts of war. And I think it's, it's pretty fair to say that uh, it's, it's widely known within the Gaza Strip that Hamas has, you know, turned the entire area into a fortified military uh, region with 500 kilometers of, of terror tunnels, uh, with Israeli hostages, a couple hundred, a little over 100, who are held subterranean in the most horrible conditions, men, women, and children. 
and the past couple of weeks have been firing, you know, thousands of rockets. This is this is what Israel is faced with. And I don't think that's something that's been telegraphed by the media. And I don't think there's a recognition by by the world that, well, if if we wanted this conflict to end, all Hamas has to do, all all that they have to do is to um, demilitarize the area, to uh, to give up, give up the, the hostages that they've taken and to de-radicalize the population. The war could be over tomorrow. And uh, there's a proclamation that there should be a ceasefire. Yeah, there's been dozens of ceasefires. Hamas is committed in chapter and verse to committing another October 7th over and over and over again. Uh, but I don't think that's that's taken hold in the narrative. Uh, it doesn't seem to be at all. How do Palestinians separate themselves from Hamas? Well, you mean in terms of actual um, distinction between identifying as civilians versus combatants? I mean, that that's the biggest challenge, right? Hamas does not wear military fatigues. They intentionally wear civilian attire and turn uh, the area in, and civilians into human shields. So it's an incredibly difficult situation for Israel. Now, that doesn't grant them immunity if they situate themselves among civilian neighborhoods and mosques. Or, or turn hospitals like Al-Shifa Hospital into a command and control center. Uh, but there is a responsibility. Certainly, like if, if the Palestinian people, if, if they know the whereabouts of the hostages, they should disclose that. Uh, and, um, and if they really want to ensure peace among their population, then they've got the worst representatives for, for, their, uh, for their interests. I was talking to a Middle East expert about this and, and, and used the analogy that I opened this, uh, this segment with about freedom and democracy versus authoritarianism and terrorism. And when I asked him about that, he said uh, he again referred to the history dating back to the 1940s and, and the fight over territory and land or such. I'm not sure... Uh, because, because there's there's so much history. I mean, we have enough of that in our own country. We're seeing now with with the residential school system and such and such. I'm not sure how this moves the discussion forward or how it leads to a solution. Uh, well, is is yeah, anybody yeah. talking <laughs> about this area post war? Well, the, the 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 problem is that the paradigm has been that we are dealing with a territorial conflict, when in reality it is existential. It is Hamas that should be uh, up at uh, the International Court of Justice facing charges of genocide because that, that's what they've stated to do. They've stated that openly on TV, uh, in interviews. They, it's very clear, vividly clear in their charter. Uh, and, and yet that's not what's taking hold. So we're dealing with the situation of a, a moral perversion of uh, human, human wrongs and not human rights. So uh, that that's you know I don't think people fundamentally realize that these aren't politicians that they have embedded themselves within the Gaza Strip. They are their patron Iran is very happy with with what's transpiring, having Israel uh, being having its reputation tarnished by global bodies and the media in political fora, uh, and it's Hamas that should be charged. You know, for example, with uh, with the crime against humanity of genocide, but it's it's not taking hold. You talked about how this and the relationship between Palestinians and Hamas is not coming out. How, why do you think that is? Why do you think Canadians or in cities across the land are, are going through what they're going through? I think it might have something to do with a conventional black and white narrative. It might have to do with a, a soft bigotry of low expectations. Um, I, I think for, you know, I deal with the, the realm of media bias and with journalists. I think there's a, a reluctance to ask probing questions. 
I, I haven't heard a journalist ask a question of everyday Palestinians if they support what Hamas has done, um, if they condemn it, and if they do, they should say it. Look, I, there's a difference. That is the question, Mike, that I've been asking since this happened. Uh, is is can somebody please define the difference between Hamas and Palestinians and what the relationship is? And I'm just asking that as an ignorant Canadian who wants an answer, and it's impossible to get one. Yeah, it's it's the right question you got to ask, and and we know that there's a difference between free and fear societies. We yeah. know that there is no such thing as um, as dissent in the Palestinian territories because to do so would get you strung up on a crane and hung. Yeah. Uh, that that's just a reality. So one of the reasons we're not seeing that dissent is because it is that kind of an autocracy, a theocracy, uh, a real you know they, they, there is a, an avowed effort that if you are going to speak out against what uh, what the Hamas terror regime has done, uh, they're going to target you, target you. They're going to target your family. Uh, but we have to, you know, there's a saying, sunlight is is uh, the best disinfectant. This needs to come to a public spotlight. Mike Fagelman with us, latest in the National Post. It's up to Gazans to stop the fighting. The war could be over tomorrow if Hamas laid down its arms or the civilian population stopped supporting it. Mike, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Likewise, Scott. Thank you. South Africa accusing Israel of charges of genocide at The Hague. Let's bring in Arl Brown, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs, University of Toronto, and here now. Arl, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Arl, before we get to this, I want to ask you about, uh, and obviously you, 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 I'm sure you didn't hear it, but I had an interview yes, uh, just a few minutes ago with Mike Fengelman, who is Executive Director of Honest Reporting Canada, a nonprofit organization ensuring fair and accurate Canadian media, media coverage of Israel. And he had an article in the, uh, in the National Post that says, it is up to Gazans to stop the fighting. The war could be over tomorrow if Hamas laid down its arms or the civilian population stopped supporting it. I've been trying to ask the question, as an ignorant Canadian, uh, for weeks, can anybody clarify what the relationship between Hamas and Palestinians are or is? Is that possible? Hamas uh, rules by force. When they they were elected, but then they went after their opposition, they threw off members of um, uh, the Palestinian Authority of rooftops in 2007, and they have uh, ruled as a dictatorial entity ever since then. And in a sense, the Palestinian people in Gaza are also very much op- uh, oppressed by uh, Hamas, and uh, uh, Hamas uses armed force against any any opposition. They obviously have some supporters, but we don't know exactly what the level of support is. Uh, this is not... Uh, uh, clearly a democratic government, but uh, one that uh, has brought uh, terror not only to Israel, but also to the people of Gaza. So how do Palestinians rid themselves or separate themselves from Hamas? Because I think the cell would be easier with allies if, that's was, if that was the case. Is there a plan there? Is there a way to do that? Uh, the problem as with... Uh, any kind of terrorist uh, or uh, entity uh, or an extreme dictatorship is that sometimes the people can't do it. They yeah. need help uh, from the outside. This is what happened in the Second World War when we looked at uh, the populations of um, Italy, Germany, uh, Japan. And uh, so Hamas uh, will not leave voluntarily. Uh, they have the guns. Uh, 
they use the population cynically. They use them as a human shield. They don't seem to care about the lives of civilians. And the only way to remove them is to eradicate them as a military force, Hamas, that is. And that would uh, uh, be something not only positive for the people of Israel who live under the threat of genocide from Hamas, they clearly stated their goal, but also as uh, uh, the large democracies way back in October declared that uh, Hamas had brought nothing but uh, terror and uh, bloodshed to the people of uh, Gaza, so the people of Gaza would also benefit. But in the process of trying to remove them, the sad reality is that in war, inevitably, there are large numbers of casualties. And we saw that in the case of Mosul, for example, in the case uh, of Iraq, when the United States and their allies uh, removed ISIS from Mosul. It took about nine months. There were some like 10,000 civilians who died during that nine-month operation, 10,000. And uh, uh, ISIS was much less well-prepared, far less well-entrenched in Mosul than Hamas is. So it's a very difficult battle. Israel is paying a high price uh, in uh, the loss of its own soldiers. And, of course, now you have this bizarre situation with South Africa basically acting as an agent for Hamas, has brought this case uh, before the International Court of Justice, which the United States itself said has uh, no merit whatsoever. Where is this case going? Uh, we we don't know. We'll have to see uh, what happens. And uh, for anyone who cares about international law, the fact that this case was brought at all ought to be worrisome because the credibility of international law had been very badly damaged in the 21st century. We saw that uh, Vladimir Putin invaded Georgia, then he invaded Ukraine for the first time in 2014, then a massive all-out invasion of Ukraine in 2022, and they did so with impunity. International law could do nothing about it. The United Nations had been entirely impotent. We saw that in the case of Azerbaijan, they ethnically cleansed uh, the region Nagorno-Karabakh, and there was a ruling by the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, that had ordered the blockade to be lifted 30 months before it was entirely ignored. So international law uh, uh, has been in trouble. And now what I would suggest is a very cynical misuse of international law by South uh, Africa uh, is likely to bring international law into much greater disrepute. Try to make sense of it all. Arl Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Arl, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Uh, we certainly talked a lot about inflation and the housing crisis, the health care crisis. You know, we pretty much got that, or we're working on that. And then all of a sudden, a boom in population, and we seem to be back at square one with overcrowded emergency rooms, not to mention what is happening with the housing crisis. Uh, and, and and today, the Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, said that housing is the number one issue with the government. And I'm thinking, since when? 
Um, but anyway, w- w- what's frightening in all of this is whenever she was asked during this news conference about higher immigration and the fact that the, uh, the, uh, the people in the immigration department have said, you can't, these targets are too high. You're putting too much stress on housing, healthcare services, the economy, whatever. That was two years ago. And it looks like they went ahead and did it anyway. And we are where we are. And when the minister was asked about this, she said, well, that's why we're building so many houses. Let's bring in Murtaza Hader, professor of data science, real estate management at Toronto Metropolitan University. He's here now. Murtaza, thank you for your time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you. And hope you're doing well, too. So far, so good. Happy New Year to you. Uh, what are your thoughts when you hear this? Because all of a sudden, we've again got a self-inflicted wound on our hands. And it looks that the Fed's own people were telling them two years ago, you're heading for a train wreck here. Yes, I mean, this is, um, so it, it has several layers. And it's a very complicated question. But let's let's try to break it. Like, let's look at the first thing, that if you have a significant increase in population in a short period, um, whatever may be the reason, in our case, it's immigration, obviously, it will increase the demand for housing. There's no doubt about it. Now, if that happens, that rapid increase in population happens at a time where housing construction or supply has been lacking, and that's the past five decades, uh, mm-hmm. then the increase in population would have even a bigger impact on availability, the competition between pro- potential buyers and renters, and so on and so forth. And there's academic literature that suggests that the increase in, in, in a rapid increase in population would have an impact on housing prices and rents. And you really don't need a PhD to conclude that. It's fairly obvious, right? The question for us to to entertain are two questions. I mean, first, the political question. I mean, a few months ago, we heard the prime minister say housing is not a federal matter. Then they removed the housing minister, replace him with a smart man, I believe. Sean Fraser is doing um, lots of things, and he's doing much more than what the government did in the past five to seven years. So you see that there's a change in the attitude. And then today, um, uh, Ms. Freeland saying it's a number one issue. So, yeah. you, so so for me, this is surprising that, you know, just a few months ago, it was not even a federal matter. And now it's a number one issue. What changed? I mean, for if you ask me, this could have been the number one issue the day liberal government was first uh, elected into power under uh, under Prime Minister Trudeau. But they chose not to do it in the first mandate or the second mandate. And then halfway through the third mandate, it becomes the first and foremost issue. Now, that leaving aside, and I don't know why they, they didn't do things that they should have done eight years ago or 10 years ago. Going back to the other complicated question, and the complicated question is, okay, you got an advice from the government's own um, experts saying that if you increase the supply of immigration, it will increase the demand for housing, so it would have an impact on 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 uh, on housing and healthcare and whatnot. That's all fine and dandy, and you had this advice for two years. That's fine, but the question is, when the when the job vacancy rates peaked um, after COVID, where before um, before the pandemic, we would have roughly half a million vacancies across Canada, right? That was the norm. In a given year, you expect 500 to 600,000 job vacancies in Canada. And then something happened during COVID, people got served money or whatever, and they decided not to re- report back to work. And those vacancies 
increased to 1.1, 1.2 million workers, so almost doubled. The question is, what did those bureaucrats tell the government if there is its rapid increase in vacancies, job vacancies, if they double, um, where will the where will the workers come from? I mean, that's the thing. That's where I worry about people who are one variable experts. They look at housing and ignore the the need for workers to start the um, to continue the uh, powering the economic engine. So it's not that straightforward. But now moving forward to 2023, it looks like those vacancy rates have gone down again. It's yeah. re- returning to those long term average of about 500 to 6,000. So I think there may be some merit in revisiting the idea of not bringing in half a million immigrants or another half a million students and and, 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 and and temporary workers. Maybe we try to align our existing housing stock with the, with the immigration inflow uh, while looking at the need for the businesses and, and, and the industry to keep Um, our economic engine going. So it's not a one single variable model that you become an expert in housing and then everything is wrong. But you also look at the fact that we need Canadian businesses to run. We need those uh, Tim Hortons in in, in Thunder Bay to to be staffed. We need those uh, restaurants to have people working in remote parts of the city. Just don't think only about Hamilton or Toronto where you find workers. If you want to keep the whole country running, you need workers. And that may be one thing that workers here who are already here and Canadians, they may want to report back to work sooner than later, because that would be a better thing because they already are are ones are the ones with housing and going back to work means that we don't have to look for workers elsewhere. Uh, the deputy prime minister said, well, uh, when asked about this report and the fact that they'd ignored this information for two years, she then sidetracked and went on to how, many, how much housing they were now building. It, it, like, obviously, there was a housing crisis long before this all started. Um, is any of this going to play out or are we ever going to catch up at this rate? I don't know how many houses. This is kind of a surprise to me that if there is some news out there or information that we are building tons of housing. Um, there was a press release recently by CoStar Group um, where they showed that the at least in November of last year, we had uh, fewer housing starts, annualized housing starts as of November 2023 mm-hmm. than in November 2022, which means that roughly, like if I were to translate this, I would say that we were looking at fewer homes being constructed in 2023 than they were in 2022. So I think the graph is going downwards rather than upwards. But then again, um, the deputy prime minister is far more knowledgeable about the statistics uh, and, and they have more access to information. But, you know, I can wait for a few weeks to see what the December starts were like. So this would this way we would have the complete picture for 2023 to see if there has been a meaningful increase in housing starts. But I can tell you right now, there's no need for suspense. We do not have a meaningful increase in housing starts. What we really need, if you believe CMHC, CMHC said we need half a million, uh, we need five million plus homes in eight years, which means that you need to build 500,000 homes a year. We are roughly around 250,000, maybe 275,000. So we are nowhere near. So your question, are we going to catch up at this pace? Never. Murtaza Hader with us, Professor of Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University. Always fascinating, Murtaza. Thanks for the time. Be well. Always a pleasure. Thank you. 
All right, we've talked at length about the situation and the homelessness going on in the Hammer, and uh, it's happening everywhere, by the way, including uh, tents, encampments, and such. Uh, you remember that tiny shelters, uh, tiny homes were once a uh, an option. Uh, let's look and get an update there, see what's going on. And Dan Bednes, uh, Bednes is with us, board chair, board of directors for the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters. And here now, Dan, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yeah, I am. And thank you for having me on uh, tonight. I really appreciate it. Give us a bit of an update, Dan. Where are we with all of this? Well, our uh, team is actually quite excited. We're we're going down two avenues, one whereby we're reviewing uh, the sites that we had proposed previously, plus looking at about 15 other ones that have been recently surfacing. We've extended our reach beyond the wards one, two, and three, and have listened closely to the uh, public. And uh, we are looking into other wards as well as uh, for opportunities. But here's something that's very important. The Strawn event has a silver lining in, in that we have established a very sound nurturing the relationship with Lyuna and Inwell, who are as you know, uh, strong corporate uh, citizens for Hamilton. And they're Mm -hmm. associated with the um, Hamilton is Homes uh, Coalition um, um, involving a number of nonprofit uh, developers and builders, et cetera. So that's another avenue we're going down. And um, there's some prospects there that are very uh, enlightening and uh, look positive right now. How's, How's the process different now, Dan? Well, the process, uh, first of all, uh, we have a criteria that uh, of about 22 uh, items that we look at when we look at a site, and we've changed a few of them or altered a few of them, one of which I've, I've mentioned is the um, fact, that, fact that we're going to go beyond the, well beyond the core area for a site mm-hmm. selection, and I think that's very, very important. Secondly, we will lead wherever, wherever whatever site uh, candidate or candidates we arrive with, we will ensure that we lead the um, uh, engaging with the community beforehand, before any decision is made on a particular site. And I think that's very important. So we're listening very closely. Um, I'm sure we've chatted that, you know, we've talked to the people up in Kitchener and how they're doing it and such. And, and you were talking about broadening the scope of sites, uh, site selection. I remember way back when uh, many said, well, you know, you got to keep everybody downtown because that's where the services are. And I remember talking to KW. They said exactly the opposite. They said yeah. if they're even if they're in their own situation uh, in own area, that it's easier just to bring the services to them. And and that can easily uh, be be. Uh, initiated as well. Uh, is that the broader thinking that we're looking at here? Yes, it is. Uh, we're, we'll overcome, uh, we'll make sure we're near a transit uh, system of, of some yeah. sort, uh, wherever we land. But, uh, you know, we'll do whatever we have to, to overcome any constraints with regard to bringing the social workers, social supports to to the village and so that is a that is a problem we would be happy to tackle over some of the other heavy weighted issues that we could be faced with so we will deal with that what are the biggest challenges for you dan um the challenges are to um are to make sure that we have a site that has a welcoming by the community. And we know we're not going to have 100% of everyone behind it, 
But I think uh, from an ideology perspective, everyone wants something good to be done to help yeah. our less fortunate. And if we can really communicate uh, the safety measures that we'll put in place, and we do a good job on that, especially in the early um, earlier time of selection, site selection, then I think we'll overcome a lot of the um, concerns that some of the uh, uh, residents would have. Also, we are looking for more of an industrial-based site, uh, and I yeah. think that helps that situation immensely. How close, because this is more of, an, I don't know, initially this was a short-term solution, mid-term, long-term, but it still seems this is still quite a ways away. Yeah, um, the site, uh, we're, we feel we're getting very close to having a few uh, candidate sites to propose. Um, and in fact, we've made arrangements to meet with the mayor one-on-one -on -one and council, all of the councillors. So we have some meetings scheduled this month with them. And um, I think we're going to have some good news before the end of the month. I really do. And we want to get established. We put a, a target. Uh, we set our own goal to be established by my mid-year. And, and we're adamant we're going to get there. Um, you know, again, Dan, this appears to be a good idea. We've seen how it works in Kitchener and other places where they have had success with it. But again, it's just one of the many spokes in the wheel. And I don't know if you can address this, Dan, because this is, you know, Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters is what you are focused on right now. But obviously, you know, this is a ways away. And it, before, you know, people actually get into uh, in, into homes and such. And, and still, even then, it's a very, it's a drop in the bucket to what we need. What about the situation right now? And I remember talking during the summer with, with various people from the city and whatever that were trying to come up with protocol for tent encampments and such. And I'm thinking to myself in the back of my mind, but winter's coming. Like how this gets yeah. us through August. But what about September, October, November, December, and the snow starts flying? And, and very similar to the way you're coming up or, or looking for these little locations for the tiny shelters. Uh, uh, what about, you know, because we were there were stories in the news about people showing up in RVs and them trying to remove them. What about that as a middle ground before we get to the tiny shelters? Do you know, and again, I know it's not your expertise, but has that ever been thrown around where, you know, rather than having people in tents in parks in the winter, having them very similar to a tiny shelter in a semi-campground type of situation where, like any campground, you got to follow the rules and regulations and, and safety and such. Has that ever been thrown around do you know actually very recently we've started discussions with the inwell and other um others uh, about exactly that having a hybrid arrangement and um yeah. you, absolutely um it it has to be considered it wasn't in the past but we've started discussions on this as recently as about three weeks ago so um you've touched on an area that we i can't elaborate on at this very point in time but we are working close with our partners to come up with a holistic um, solution because you're right. 25 homes is not going to do it. We're we're dealing yeah. with 300, 400 individuals who are out on the streets, and these streets can't be our emergency rooms prior to a full remedial care 
action being taken. So we need hmm. a more uh, holistic view. And that's why working with Indwell and others, we're looking at, okay, there has to be an exit strategy so that we're looking end to end at the continuum. And so the emergency side has to be dealt with now. And we need a creative solution that is a bit of a hybrid. And so you've touched on an area that we're just starting to explore um, more to be heard on that probably within the next two weeks. Dan Bedness with his board chair, board of directors for the Hamilton Alliance for Tiny Shelters, helping those uh, that are in need of a home. Dan, th- uh, Dan, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you, Scott. Scott Radley coming up after the six o'clock news. Uh, and of course, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. You? I'm doing very well. I'm going to read you this, and I, I know you already know all about this. Uh, and, of course, you had kids in hockey. I've got uh, had two, boy and a girl. And as a matter of fact, my son just came na- uh, home now from his high school game, and they won in a shootout 3-2. Nice. Uh, there you go. Nice. Um, but the head of the uh, Minor Hockey Association in Newfoundland is now backtracking uh, the body because teams aren't participating. The body that oversees amateur hockey in the province banned after-game handshakes last, mu- uh, last month mm. because it had led to suspension of players and coaches and all hell breaking loose. Then they modified their position, saying handshakes could incur at the beginning of the game. Why they didn't think about that ahead of time is beyond me. It's called critical thinking. And then, oh yeah, by the way, the girls, they're still permitted handshakes uh, after matches. Um, first of all, why they didn't come up with this uh, doing it before is beyond me. Uh, that that would before, not be unusual, Scott. I mean, when my son was I know. playing, and that Same was thing with mine. a yep, number of years ago, they did it before. I don't know. This is not like yep. something that requires deep thought or or even creativity it's been out there and and same with my kids as well uh certainly with the boy it's before the game uh that being said here's another great example of rather than leadership or even managing the situation because to me this would seem very very simple if you're in a handshake before or after the game and you get in a fight you're out so why is this so hard to police i mean it's like kids and cell phones it's very simple you take it away why why do we even get to this point you know it's a really interesting question let me just back up for one second because generally in sports in particular we don't have a problem uh, groups don't have a problem suspending kids or kicking them out if they misbehave that, that yeah. that's not uncommon in sports whether it's competitive or recreational if you do something ridiculous that happens. So yep. if we're willing to do that in sports to say that we have strong standards and if you break our rules, you're out, why are we seemingly less willing to do that in schools? Good point. Because look, I, I, I there's a lot of things that happen in sports that I find hilarious that uh, when you apply it to real life, for example, we we all know the stories of parents who get, you know, all bent out of shape about stuff in their kids' sports. And we demand that, you know, kids in sports get equal time and my kids should be having equal ice time with someone else. Where in high school, we don't, I don't know, I've not heard of parents whose kid did not get the lead role in the play marching in and saying, my kid will be Jean Valjean, or you will have two <laughs> Jean Valjeans because my kid deserves to be the lead. We don't, we don't apply this. My, you don't have people going in 
I've never seen a parent rush the stage or scream at a teacher if their kid doesn't win the science prize and someone else does. We say that's acceptable because that kid was best at science, therefore he wins the prize. Yet in sports, for some reason, we believe somehow, and I don't know if this is, you know, some sort of sign of our breeding or whatever. I don't know that it proves that we're advanced in our DNA. Who knows? But it's weird how we do different things with sports than we do with anything else as it pertains to Well, actually, Scott, uh, sorry to cut you off. I can actually, from experience, say with theater at least, Parents of theater kids can get a little intense. <laughs> like uh, maybe not as intense as the sports parents, but they, you know what? You're dumb. You're right. There are those, there is that, or there are those Netflix shows about dance parents and stuff. So I, I mean, I get that. I just, it's interesting, Scott, when you bring this up about why not just set the standard and say, if you cross that line, you're out. And my argument to that would be, well, we kind of do in most sports and most sports will Dis- will discipline kids, kids in particular, will discipline kids who really go above and break those rules. I uh, got a family, friends, and uh, two girls, and they're both in the education system, and they're both married to teachers. The two guys are coaches, different schools, high school, whatever. And and they were telling us stories that when you cut the kid from the team, you get the car, the call from the yep. parent, and it's like, what are you doing? You just call cut Jimmy from wherever, whatever, whatever. And it was hilarious because this this coach, this per- and they're like in their thirties, went off and said, if you want your kid to make the team, tell them to go home and practice more, and maybe they'll make it next time. So (laughs) back years and I mean, this is a long time going back now. When my son was in elementary school, there was a rule that kids could not be cut from the school team. And so their middle school or elementary school volleyball team. You got like 45 people playing volleyball. Well, that's right. So they had, I think 19 kids came out. And so you had 19 kids who had to have equal playing time. And again, again, my argument then was, why is it that we don't look at kids who are talented at sports and say, look, you're really good at sports. So you get to excel in sports. If we have science fairs at schools and we don't say everybody gets the prize, everyone gets, no, you have winners in everything sports for whatever reason. And I, I have, I have theories, but they're way too long for now. For, (laughs) For whatever reason, sports makes us, especially as it pertains to our kids compared to other things, makes us do things we don't do in any other facet of our life. And I just, I, I, I do sometimes struggle to say if we did the same thing in school or in band or somewhere else that we do to our coaches, people would think you were completely touched. And yet somehow this is not as, I mean, we do think of bad sports parents, but we don't ostracize, not, we don't, we, we, we just say, ah, they're, they're goofy. We, but we, it would be, they'd be entirely crazy if this happened in school. Well said. Scott Radley continues the conversation after the 6 o'clock news. You can read them in your spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time and have a great show. Thanks. See ya. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. To have the last word. This this one coming from Jim via email in regard to the global pandemic. Remember that? He says, hey, I actually liked my time in the global pandemic. I got off work for two months. I got paid. Compliments of Tudo. I went to Florida and enjoyed normal life a few times. But I know I'm only in the majority. LOL. Love, Jim. Keep right except to pass. (laughs) 